Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. My name is Claire and it is a very special episode of Lost in Science this week. It is our special episode for International Women's Day and I have with me a wonderful, excellent Catriona. Hello. Hello, Claire. It's lovely to be chatting with you. It's so good to have us both on Lost in Science, kicking Chris and Stew out of the studio and taking over all female voices for International Women's Day this year. Woo! So, Kat, how are you feeling about International Women's Day? I'm feeling pretty great. I think it's a great day to celebrate some of the amazing women scientists that have come before us in Australia. Some of them, maybe you've heard their stories before and maybe some of them you haven't. So are you going to be sharing some of your favourite and, well, I don't want to say favourite, maybe some of the most inspirational female scientists with us today? Yeah, maybe some of the ones who people haven't heard of so much. It's probably... Yeah, so not necessarily my favourite, but like, you know, the kind of unrecognised heroes. The the heroes who may have gone under the radar. Well, I think that's super important to bring to light stories of um, women in science that we don't necessarily hear through the year, especially at this time of year. Um, I have brought for us today, Kat, um, an interview with a scientist who I think you might know, Dr. Ashley Hood. She is a geologist, so obviously um, she rocks. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Sorry. Love it. Um, yeah, but she asks mm. questions like, how did life on Earth evolve and why? Um, like just the biggest, most philosophical questions um, and that you can sort of ask in science. Yeah, and, and literally like age-old questions. <laughs> yes, yes, age-old questions. And she does incredible work looking at rocks and sediments and these old, and I'm not talking just like a little bit old, but like, <laughs> yeah, like you say, age-old rocks to determine exactly how life has evolved. So stick around for Ashley. Um, She is a literal force of nature. Yeah, I feel like we're going to be introducing our listeners to quite a few forces of nature in science for this International Women's Day episode. So on with the show. So for International Women's Day, I thought I'd share with you some stories of some incredible people who I just think are very inspirational because they're amazing women in science. And um, 
I think it's probably a bias list <laughs> in that it's very like microbiology, immunology focused. Yeah. Yeah. That's not to say that there aren't incredible women scientists who have like been in other fields too. <laughs> and for all our listeners, um, you are an immunologist, right? So they're, I am. They're, okay. Okay. Heavy bias. <laughs> Um, so the first person I wanted to talk about is Lucy Alford, mm-hmm. um, and she was born in 1915 and attended the University of Melbourne. Um, and essentially, she was she was very qualified. Like she'd done a stint at um, CSIRO, she'd worked in a pathology lab at a hospital in Perth, and she'd done all these great things. And then in 1941, the Melbourne Metropolitan Board of Water which is essentially the body in charge of the entire Melbourne sewage system, realised, ah, oh, something's corroding these concrete sewage pipes. Oh. We need to do something. <laughs> oh, right. Was it causing sewage to go everywhere? Is that? <laughs> yeah, and just like. Something foul like that? Yeah, um, not the best. <laughs> Gross. Um, plus things leaking out. And yeah. Yeah, just. Yeah. Just not ideal. And so essentially the home base was kind of the the pumping station, which is at ScienceWorks now. (laughs) So very exciting. But essentially they were like, okay, so something's corroding the pipes. It's probably bacteria. So we need to find someone who's qualified in microbiology. Um, Oh, no, it's 1941. All the young men are at war. (laughs) (laughs) So... After two rounds of call-outs, she was the only qualified applicant. And like like I said, she was more than qualified. Yeah. Um, yep. And so they're like, oh, okay, we'll take you on temporarily. Mm-hmm. And she ended up staying with them for 20 years. Oh, wow. So like they didn't even put her on the books until five years later. They were like, oh, no, it's only temporary. <laughs> um, but no, she, she truly made her mark there. So essentially her role was to work out what is the bacteria that's corroding these pipes. And um, she worked with another scientist and together they worked out that it was um, a particular type of bacteria called thiobacillus. And what they do is they take, you know, the like kind of um, rotten egg gas that you can associate with sewage sometimes. Yeah. So they were taking up that gas and converting it into, which is um, sulfur gas. And they were converting it into sulfuric acid. And mm. acid is corrosive. So that's uh-huh. what was corroding the pipes. So she figured um, this out. She and and her, her partner, yeah. Mm. So the, the two of them together. And they even identified a new thiobacillus species, which is kind of cool. Like, so Melbourne's sewage system had like this new undiscovered wow. thiobacillus species, um, which is pretty cool. And so how did they solve the problem? A, a big solution, which is actually still used today um, in, in sewage systems, um, you just aerate it. Because oh. if you don't let the gas accumulate, mm. it isn't going to be turned into as much acid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but also another really cool thing that she did was she kind of moved into water quality monitoring and also looking at um, if infections came up, where did they come from? Right. So um, there was an outbreak of typhoid. I mean, there were lots of typhoid outbreaks even before Melbourne sewage system was in place. But this particular outbreak came from Moorabbin and people were like, oh, where's it coming from? Is it is it a problem with the pumping station and like some night soil? Is, it, is there like contamination? She figured out 
again with with a team but like they figured out that no it came from the wife of a dairy farmer and people just don't drink that milk for three days (laughs) brilliant um yeah so an absolutely incredible woman who you know wasn't even nearly wasn't going to be given a chance to work there um but ended up working there until she retired um so yeah absolutely incredible uh, another person that I wanted to talk about is Dora Lush, who was born five years earlier, so 1910. Um, and maybe if you haven't heard of Dora Lush, you've probably heard of her close collaborator, McFarlane Burnett. Ah, yes. Yeah. So she researched infectious diseases like the flu um, and myxomatosis, actually, and oh. was involved in the early developments of myxomatosis. Myxomatosis the, being the sort of the vi- virus that yeah, was the released. The disease that the virus causes when you release it into rabbit populations. It's rabbit populations. So, yeah, yeah, right. It's a biocontrol. Yeah, oh. just to cull, like, the overpopulation of mm-hmm. rabbits. But during World War II typhus scrub typhus was a really really big thing um that was killing soldiers and she had had first-hand experience of war like the first war and so she was like okay i'm really really devoted to to dealing with this and so a lot of people thought at the time that a vaccine was the solution to typhus yeah so she was devoted to finding a vaccine and she essentially injected a mouse or lots of mice um, with the disease. But unfortunately, she accidentally pricked herself in doing so. Oh. Yeah. And she passed away four weeks later. But, like, she was so dedicated. She was telling everyone, like, take my blood. Take my blood at different time points. Wow. (laughs) Like, study me. Um, So, yeah, I, I think that's, you know, Quite, quite incredible and it wasn't that long later when people realized oh this is a bacteria you can treat that with antibiotics yeah yeah but you know oh they just didn't know yeah back then yeah what could have what could have been if she hadn't pricked herself um mm. and got that disease at, at, at that time um she did some really cool work in influenza though she monitored the 1939 influenza epidemic in melbourne and she realized that the strain you can get the same strain but the virus can slightly change so it looks slightly mm. different in the immune system so people thought that when different sort of similar viruses came along or similar strains of the influenza virus came along they they like literally coming in differently um, from different sources. But she realized that in the population in Melbourne, it was actually just that there was variation. And that's kind of what we're seeing now with the COVID-19 pandemic is what we know with lots of viruses now that, you know, you can have slight variations that just arise. Wow. So, yeah, that was that kind of lay the groundwork. Very prescient. Mm. Nancy Millis is someone who might be a little bit more well known and what I what you might not know <laughs> so much about so she really headed biotechnology in Australia particularly in Melbourne yeah um, but that idea of bringing biology together with engineering together with like you know genetic engineering yeah. and um, part of it was the fact that she looked at in Bristol, why and how certain bacteria cause cider to turn bad during the fermentation process. Um, And she discovered that bacteria, similar to yeast, can release chemicals that change the taste of cider. Ah. Um, 
And that kind of led her to a lifelong passion in anything that ferments. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she, she was, like, really pivotal in introducing genetic engineering to the very fledgling field of biotechnology in Australia. So I won't talk about her too long because there's lots on her. Um, but someone I also just wanted to, to just mention is Kat Gauss, who was at UNSW in Sydney. And uh, I, I wanted to mention her because I knew her personally and it was very much a shame for the scientific community when she passed away. Um, but she was incredible in terms of just pioneering new ways to look at individual molecules in cell membranes to work out what's going on when cells get activated. Because no one had ever like sort of looked at that detail before. We're like, oh yeah, cells get activated. Cool. But she was like, how? Wow. Yeah, so, like, so she was looking at individual molecules. Yeah. How so she even? Found way, yeah, right. Um, she found ways to like label particular molecules within the cell membrane um, so that you could work out, you know, what's going on and where they are. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sort of the unique thing that she brought to it. Mm. People had been able to like sort of look at molecules before, but not where they were in space too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and she saw some cool things about how, oh, you know, these particular receptors are engaged and cool, that means activation. But actually the signal is spread. It's kind of like a ripple effect yeah. away from it and there's lots more going on than we thought. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. What an excellent list of wonderful scientists who've contributed so much to the field. And it's definitely not an exhaustive list either. There are lots of great people out there. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful, radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. Science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So, have you ever wondered what Earth was like in the early days? What about when Earth was, you know, more than three and a half billion years ago? What was it like and how did it go about changing into the beautiful green and blue globe we all know and love? Geologist Dr. Ashley Hood is our guest today and can help us answer some of these questions with her research. She's lecturer in the School of Geography, Earth, Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Melbourne, as well as being an all-round rock star, pun intended. Ashley, welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks very much for having me. (laughs) So, Ashley, your research, it tells a story of life on Earth. It's being a geologist, it's a huge timescale that you're looking at. Can you tell us a bit about the types of questions that you ask in your research across this huge timescale? So that's right. Geology has really long timescales, perhaps beaten only by physics. But I, Not that I, it's a competition, however. No, not that it's a competition. Um, but, yeah, that's right. I look mainly at the early Earth, so, and I class that anywhere between about 4 billion and about a, a billion or half a billion years ago, so really long timescales. And it's a really amazing that over this, say, four, four and a half billion years that we've had of the Earth, that we've managed to support life on Earth for all of this time. And so there's these huge fundamental questions to science. And these are things like, what is the origin of life on Earth? Uh, how has life survived for four billion years or three oh. and a half billion years? 
Um, and through particularly how has it survived through intervals of climate change and environmental change um, so that our earth has become from this strange place that it used to be a sort of a hostile place to life in many ways. How has that life survived through these various changes in the planet to our beautiful earth that we have today that's that's thriving and green and beautiful oceans? So these questions that I look at are really, I think, fundamental questions in science about how we got here, basically. Not small questions. <laughs> Not small, that's right. What is the origin of life and what is our purpose? <laughs> I've left the purpose one aside. And... In your questions and your research, you look a lot at fossilised coral reefs um, around the world. Why is it important to look at these coral reefs and what do they tell us about um, life on Earth? That's right. So reefs like the Great Barrier Reef, for example, today are hotspots of biodiversity on our modern Earth. And as we go back through time, we can also look at ancient reefs to tell us a little bit about what's going on in ancient oceans. Uh, and so most of the evolution of life is actually in the oceans uh, and particularly in the shallow parts of the oceans. So reefs, as we, if we can track reefs through time and how they change and how the organisms that make up the reef change, we can track something about um, not only just evolution, but actually how that marine environment has changed as well. Uh, and so I look at um, mainly reefs from an era, era called the Neoproterozoic, that's around about, say, 800 or 600 million years ago, um, these reefs. And these are made of some unusual creatures that are, sort of take the place of corals, like in modern day reefs, but they, mm. they're slightly different. We don't really know what they are. They're kind of unusual, perhaps microbial things or some maybe a very primitive uh, animal. We're not really sure. Um, but these reefs, again, are these hotspots of biodiversity in these really unusual oceans that characterise this time. So they're not oceans that we would typically think of as the oceans that, you know, we enjoy swimming in. That's right, yeah. So they're probably um, not the greatest place for humans to hang out. So <laughs> most, of, most of Earth's history actually has been, this early part in particular, has been really devoid of oxygen in the oceans and the atmosphere. And so way back, you know, three billion years ago, it's, you know, we think that the oceans were probably green with dissolved iron and the sky might have been orange, the atmosphere might have been made of methane, you know, and a lot of carbon dioxide. And gradually um, that ocean has changed and its atmospheres have changed. Um, but probably when these reefs were around about 650 or so million years ago, probably the oceans were still very much devoid of oxygen. Whether they were clear or murky, we don't really know, but, but probably not the greatest place to swim. Not Certainly not as nice as the Great Barrier Reef today. This life, as we know it, um, was surviving in a totally oxygenless environment. That's right, exactly, yeah. And so one of the things I look at through Earth's history is I track this oxygen through time because it's intimately connected to the evolution of life. So, for example, things like animals that require oxygen to live and breathe, they can't have evolved until there was enough oxygen in the atmosphere and oceans for them to live. And so this period of time that I look at the Neoproterozoic, where around about, say, 650, where these reefs are, is when we think some of the earliest animals might have evolved, although we don't really see them in the fossil record until a little bit later, um, until around about 550 or so in the Cambrian explosion. But this is around about the time that we think oxygen picked up and enabled animals to evolve. But it's it's really uncertain as to this that, that transition in life, this complexity, kind of explosion of complexity in, in life, it's really uncertain what the environmental conditions were. And so part of my work tries to unravel that in sort of more detail than has been previously explored. 
Um, this is fascinating. I mean, how do you go about getting an understanding of what the atmospheric conditions or the oxygen concentration was like, you know, these millions and millions of years ago? What are you looking for in the rocks and these fossilised coral reefs? That's a good question. So um, so I guess we can look back at, at more recent times in Earth's history from things like the ice cores, but they don't extend back, you know, very far at all. They, and when we get to about this time period, like 600 million years ago, um, we really the, we can really only look at the rocks to understand what was happening during this time. So these reefs that I'm talking about are not no longer in the water. We don't go diving or anything. These are these have been scraped by tectonic processes, like the Himalayas. They've been scraped up and formed into mountain ranges, which have then eroded away. And so I go to places like the Flinders Ranges in Central Australia, where you walk across the hills, and it's like walking across a cross section of a beach you know, out into the ocean. So you oh, can just wow. come the hills and see all these ancient ancient beaches, ancient, you know, where the reef framework is, where the deep water is. Yeah, which is really great. And you can pick up some of the rocks you pick up, have little crystals preserved in, in them. And these crystals are like, in a sense, like salt. They precipitate out of seawater. And these form in different parts of the reef. And we can analyse these crystals with a laser uh, and determine the chemistry. And that can tell us about the chemistry of the water and how much oxygen might have been there. Wow. So these crystals are sort of give some sort of proxy understanding of what was in the water at the time. Yeah, that's exactly right. Proxy, yeah. And so we call them marine cements, and these ones are made of dolomite, which is like a kind of like limestone, but it's got magnesium in it. And, and yeah, we, we, it's pretty, it's pretty cool science. We put them in a laser, which I always think is very exciting. <laughs> <That's cool. laughs> I, um, I, I never thought of geologists using lasers. So, you know, I think yeah. you just blown a few minds around Australia now. <laughs> so Ashley, what are some of the sort of biggest results and findings from the research that you've been doing with the coral reefs? So these ancient reefs around the near Proterozoic around 600 million years ago had not been recognised before. And we originally thought that reefs very suddenly evolved with the evolution of animals. And so finding these reefs, and I should say I work obviously with a, with a large team of people, uh, including Malcolm Wallace at the University of Melbourne, and finding these reefs has made um, a huge difference in our understanding of, of how reef systems work, basically. But not only that, when we can analyse these little crystals, it's told us that these oceans were essentially devoid of oxygen, even at really shallow depths. And so this sets the scene, I guess, for the evolution of animals occurring in much lower oxygen conditions than perhaps we previously thought. Uh, if not in these exact reefs, then around about this time. Um, and so I think it's just these results are really just showing that our history of our Earth is far more complex um, than we have thought originally, which always is the case in science. Now, one particularly interesting part of Earth's story is the ice ages that we've had, and we've had a couple of ice ages, haven't we? I've, I've always wondered how life survives through ice ages in extreme periods of cold. It's uh, So life um, manages to seem to find a way through all sorts of um, catastrophic environmental change. But that's right, there has been several really big ice ages in Earth's history. And the biggest one is, is sometimes called Snowball Earth. And this happened around about the same time as these reefs. It's around about, there's two events about 700 million and about 630 billion years ago. And these two events, um, some people think the Earth actually completely froze over, including all the oceans during this time. So a very, very severe ice age. Uh, and somehow, and this went for, you know, 50 million years, which is a very long time. That's like essentially from the dinosaurs until now. People have been questioning for ages how life survived through this. Uh, and there's different research going on. And, and part of our work 
um, suggest that perhaps some parts of the Ice Age weren't as cold as other parts and maybe that's how you had areas of open ocean for things to things to survive. We had a student, uh, Max Lechty, who worked on some rocks from within the Ice Age sediments and he found that there perhaps were little oases of oxygen on the edges of these ice sheets that life and, again, animals, potential animals that might have existed might have survived through. But really at this point in time, it's maybe lucky that, that life wasn't as complex as it is today um, because they need they had a much more simple life mm. and could survive perhaps potentially better than, than today's creatures. Um, but we have had ice ages through other parts of Earth's history too when we've had much more complex animals. And while it does cause extinction events, life is very clever and always finds a way to adapt. So that is one positive thing about the history of the Earth. You've done an incredible amount field work in your research it's taken you all around the globe can you tell us about some of your favorite field locations yeah what you've found there and what you actually do when you're out on a field trip as well yeah that's a that's a great question actually because I feel like geologists are often misunderstood people think we often dig like mine for rocks but that's not what we do we in my area of research we go out to these often remote places places where you don't have uh, pesky, you know, vegetation, forests and trees getting in the way of rocks. (laughs) So really, really like deserts and mountains, basically. Yes, you like your life to be um, dead for millions and millions of years, eh? That's right, that's right. Yeah, so I I mainly go to three places. The most, um, most commonly we go to the central Australia, the Flinders Ranges, and that is an absolutely beautiful place um, to do fieldwork. It's got an amazing history, amazing cultural history, Everything about it is is really unique and beautiful and um, there's heaps of amazing animals there and heaps of beautiful rocks. So that's one place. The other places we go to are Namibia in Africa and that is also amazing. We've had many experiences camping in a river valley and having elephants surround us at night time or hear these stories about people being chased by lions and makes for exciting fieldwork. Very exciting. <laughs> and then most recently, just before the pandemic, we went to northwest Canada to the um, to the Yukon and up into the mountains there and we got dropped in by helicopter, which was very cool. And then we had to be also rescued by a helicopter because <laughs> we had a bear, a grizzly bear and her cub right next to our camp trying to get food. So <laughs> that was very exciting in its own right. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So definitely very remote places, absolutely beautiful scenery. And in each of these places, we look for these ancient reefs or ancient sort of shallow sea um, locations where the rocks preserve this history of seawater through time. So it's like a reef, reef hunting, essentially. Right. So you're collecting the rocks while you're out there. You're hunting, collecting the rocks. Then you take them back into the lab and blow them up with lasers. Blow them up with lasers. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, I think I want to become a geologist. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your incredible research, for giving us an insight into the history and the story of our earth. I do feel like I know her a little bit better now. So thank you again. Thank you. that's all we have time for on another episode of lost in science this special international women's day episode thank you for joining us and a big thank you to dr ashley hood for being our guest today and a shout out to kat my co-presenter as well 
Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kula Nation and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can find us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or just tune in again next week when Kat, Claire, Chris and Stu will get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.